Section 15 of History of Australia and New Zealand from 1696 to 1890. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of Australia and New Zealand from 1696 to 1890 by Alexander and George Sutherland. West Australia, 1829 to 1890. 1. King George's Sound. In 1825, when Sir Ralph Darling was appointed Governor of New South Wales, his commission was supposed to extend over all that part of Australia which lies between the 139th meridian and the eastern coast. Not that the whole of this country, or even the twentieth part of it, was occupied by settlers, the region was merely claimed as British territory. But the remainder of Australia, comprising about two-thirds of the continent, had not as yet been annexed by any European nation, and when, in 1826, a rumour prevailed that the French were about to occupy that region, the Sydney people were alarmed lest so great a territory should thus be lost forever to the British Empire. They, therefore, in that year, sent a detachment of soldiers to take formal possession of the country and to found a settlement at King George's Sound. From this early effort, however, no practical result ensued, and during the few years of its existence, the place continued to be nothing more than a small military station. 2. Swan River But in 1827, an English captain named Stirling, after having sailed along the western coast, gave a most favorable account of a large river he had seen on his voyage. He was not the first discoverer of this river, which, as early as 1697, had been visited by a Dutch navigator named Vlaming, who was sailing in quest of a man-of-war supposed to have been wrecked on these shores vlaming had seen this stream and astonished by the wonderful sight of thousands of jet-black swans on its surface had given to it the name of swan river but it had remained unthought of till captain sterling by his report awakened a warm and hopeful interest in this district shortly afterwards the british government resolved to found a colony on the banks of this river and captain fremantle arrived as the pioneer of the intended settlement when he landed on the shore he found that a nearer view of the country was far from realizing the expectations formed by those who had viewed it merely from the open sea he began to have forebodings but it was now too late the ships containing eight hundred of the first settlers were already close at hand, and in the course of a week or two, after narrowly escaping shipwreck on the reefs along the shore, they landed Captain Stirling, the first governor, with his little band, on the wilderness of Garden Island. Here in this temporary abode, the colonists remained for several months, sheltering themselves in fragile tents or in brushwood huts, from the rough blasts and the rains that beat in from the winter storms of the indian ocean exploring parties set out from time to time to examine the adjoining mainland but however fair it seemed from a distance they found it to be merely a sandy region covered with dense and scrubby thickets 
the only port was at a place called Fremantle, where there was but little shelter from the storms of the open ocean, and the only place suitable for a town was several miles up the Swan River, where the waters expand into broad but shallow lagoons. Here the colonists determined to build their city, to which they gave the name of Perth. But the site was not favorable to enterprise. An impassable bar stretched across the mouth of the river, which was therefore inaccessible to vessels. The goods of the colonists had to be landed on an exposed beach at Fremantle, and then carried overland through miles of sand and scrub. In 1830, about a thousand new immigrants arrived, and towards the end of this year, the colonists succeeded in settling down in their new homes at Perth. 3. Land Grants Most of these immigrants were attracted to Western Australia by the prospect of obtaining large estates. They knew how valuable land was in the well-settled countries of Europe, and when they heard of square miles in Australia to be had for a few pounds, they were captivated by the notion of so easily becoming great landed proprietors. But the value of land depends upon surrounding circumstances, and ten acres in England may be worth more than a whole wilderness in West Australia. At that time, Foolish notions were in every quarter prevalent as to what could be done by means of land. The British government thought it possible to make the colony self-supporting by paying for everything with grants, which cost it nothing, but which would be readily accepted by others as payment. Thus the governor, instead of his yearly salary, was to receive a hundred thousand acres, and all the officials were to be paid in the same manner. The land was distributed in great quantities to people who had no intention of using it, but who expected that, by the progress of colonization, it would increase enormously in value, and might then be sold for splendid prices. To induce immigrants to bring with them useful property, the government offered a bonus of twenty acres for every three pounds worth of goods imported, and the colonists quite unconscious of the future that lay before them, carried out great numbers of costly, though often unsuitable, articles, by means of which the desired grants were obtained. It was found difficult to convey this property to the town, and much of it was left to rot on the shore, where carriages, pianos, and articles of rich furniture lay half-buried in sand, and exposed to the alternations of sun and rain. Splendid horses and cattle of the finest breed had been brought out, but they wandered useless in the bush. For till the country was surveyed, nothing could be done in the way of agriculture, and even after the surveys were completed, owing to a regulation that those whose grants exceeded a square mile should be allowed the first choice, all the sections nearest to the town were obtained by officials and wealthy speculators, who had no intention of using them. Many of these persons held a district almost as large as an English county, and, therefore, the lands remaining for selection by farmers and small purchasers were generally far in the interior. The sections were pointed out on the maps, but the places themselves had never been trodden by a white man's foot, 
and were held by tribes of hostile savages some indeed tried to settle upon these distant regions but they were lonely and isolated and many of them perished either from disease and hunger or by the spears of the natives yet there were very few who made any attempt at agriculture and the costly ploughs and implements that had been imported lay rusting on the beach the horses and cattle died off the sheep that had been introduced at great expense were almost all killed through feeding on a poisonous plant which grew in patches over the country and the men themselves were forced to loiter at perth consuming their provisions and chafing at their ruinous inaction four mr peel there was one gentleman who had spent fifty thousand pounds in bringing with him to the colony everything that could be required for farming and sheep breeding on a magnificent scale he brought with him three hundred laborers but the land was by no means so fertile as he had imagined and he had scarcely commenced his farming operations when he found that his only escape from ruin was to enter single-handed on the self-dependent life of the ordinary settler five gloomy prospects matters grew worse and worse and those of the disappointed colonists who had sufficient prudence to start before their means were all exhausted either returned to europe or sought the other colonies where several achieved success notably the brothers henty who settled at launceston and established at portland bay the whaling station already mentioned the gloomy reports of those who reached england prevented any further accession of immigrants and in eighteen thirty five it was rumored though erroneously that the british government intended to abandon the place in the following year eighteen thirty six the colony of south australia was founded and a great extent of territory previously marked as belonging to west australia was assigned to the new settlement these two colonies during their early years experienced trials and difficulties of the same kind but while south australia in a short time emerged to a career of brilliant prosperity through sturdy determination to make the land productive west australia for forty years never enjoyed more than a transitory gleam of success six introduction of convicts this little improvement consisted of a message received from earl grey in eighteen forty eight asking the settlers if they were willing to accept convicts in their midst the other colonies had refused them but it was thought not unlikely that west australia might be glad to get them opinions were divided as to the reply which ought to be given while some were averse to the idea others believed that the money sent out by the british government to maintain the convicts and soldiers would originate a trade which might give to the colony new life and fresh prospects these arguments prevailed and in eighteen forty nine the first shipload of convicts arrived from time to time new gangs were received and the place began to be much more populous than before the shopkeepers in perth became rich and the farmer squatters of the surrounding districts found a ready market for their produce 
yet this success was only partial and there was nothing which might be said to constitute general prosperity in the little town of fremantle the few and scattered houses had still a rural aspect and the streets echoed to the sound of no commercial bustle in perth the main street was still a grassy walk shaded by avenues of trees and even in the business quarter the houses stood each in the midst of its spacious garden seven evils of convictism west australia had now to suffer the consequences of having become a penal settlement many of the convicts on being liberated took up their abode in the colony but their dispositions were seldom either amiable or virtuous and from the vices of these men the whole population began to lose character in the eyes of other countries a large number of the prisoners were no sooner liberated than they set off for the gold-fields in the eastern colonies which thus began to share in the evils of convictism these colonies were not inclined to suffer long in this manner and to defend themselves they refused admission to any person who came from west australia unless he could show that he had never been a convict thus the colony at swan river was branded and held to be contaminated no free immigrants sought its shores and many of its best inhabitants departed this stigma continued to rest on west australia until the year eighteen sixty eight when the transportation of criminals from great britain altogether ceased and the colony no longer received its periodical supply of convicts since that time it has in a great measure retrieved its character it is now doing what it can to attract free immigrants and offers large tracts of pastoral land at low rentals while the farming classes are attracted by free selection at only ten shillings an acre with ten years in which to pay it it has joined perth to albany by a good railway and several branch railways have been constructed as well as a large number of telegraph lines and at albany the town on king george's sound it has established a coaling depot for the mail steamers on their way to adelaide melbourne and sydney but west australia is still what it was called twenty years ago the giant skeleton of a colony consisting of about forty thousand people scattered over a hundred thousand square miles of territory behind which stretches a vast region of unexplored wilderness there is every indication however that its progress in the near future will be rapid up to eighteen seventy it formed what was called a crown colony the people had no voice in their own government their affairs were managed for them by the officers of the english government at that date however when transportation was abolished the colony was promoted to the partial management of its own affairs and the people began periodically to elect a legislative council in eighteen ninety it was still further promoted being raised to the full dignity of an independent colony having like the other colonies of australia a parliament of two houses with power to make and unmake its own laws as it pleases perth is now rapidly increasing 
and the colony is on the eve of its palmy days. End of section 15. Recording by Linda Johnson.